in the year 545 of the Armenian era, the Sultan of the West, called Kilij Arslan, the son of Suleiman, son of Kutlumush, came against the city of Melitene at the head of a tremendous number of troops. The Sultan's army covered the whole plain. Kilij Arslan launched a severe assault against Melitene and setting up catapults, put the city in dire straits. The commander of Melitene, Gabriel, who was the father-in-law of Tauros, the Kuropalates of Edessa, courageously resisted the Sultan and fortified the city on all sides. Remaining there for many days, the Sultan was unable to do anything and so turned back, humiliated, and went to his own country. In this period, the prophecy of the Armenian Catholicos, St. Nerses, who spoke to the Armenian nobles and princes concerning the coming of the Westerners, was fulfilled. That which this Catholicos spoke about in former times, we saw with our very eyes in this period, witnessing those events which the holy and prodigious man of God, Nerses the Great, had prophesied at the time of his death. This was the same vision which appeared to the saintly Daniel when in Babylon he saw the form of a monstrous beast. Moreover, he clearly saw and revealed this, speaking about the eating, chewing, and trampling of the remainder. At this time, the upsurge of the Westerners occurred, and the portals of the Latin nation were opened, for through them the Lord intended to battle with the Persians. Thus, in this year, all the peoples of Italy and Spain, right up to the confines of Africa, and even the distant Frankish nation, began to move and surged forth in a formidable and immense throng. They were very much like locusts, which cannot be counted, or the sands of the seas, which are beyond the mind's calculation. With imposing grandeur and high-ranking leadership, the noble men of the Frankish nation rose up and came forth. Each of them came with his troops to aid the Christians, to deliver the holy city of Jerusalem from the infidels, and to free the holy sepulchre which contained God from the hands of the Muslims. They were illustrious men of royal blood, endowed with piety and faith, and brought up in the practice of good works. Here are the names of these Franks. There was Godfrey, a mighty man from the lineage of Roman emperors, and his brother Baldwin. It was this Godfrey who had with him the sword and crown of the Emperor Vespasian, who destroyed Jerusalem. There was the eminent count called Bohemund and his nephew Tancred, the count called Sanji, a formidable and illustrious man, Robert, the count of Normandy, and also the other Baldwin. After this came the count called Jocelyn, a mighty and courageous man. Such mighty men and warriors as these marched forth at the head of formidable armies, numerous as the stars of the heavens. With them went many bishops, priests, and deacons, journeying with tremendous hardship via the distant lands of the Roman Empire. The Franks passed through the country of the Hungarians and through the inaccessible defiles of their mountains with great difficulty. From there, they reached the Bulgar lands, which were controlled by the Greek Emperor Alexios. So by such a journey, the Franks arrived at the great city of Constantinople. When the Emperor Alexios learned of their coming, he sent troops to battle against them. There was a tremendous amount of slaughter on both sides, and the Franks put the Greek forces to flight. So much bloodshed occurred on this day. 
In this same manner, whatever areas the Franks passed through, the inhabitants of those places attacked them and harassed them with many hardships. Now when the Emperor Alexios heard of all these troubles, he put away the sword and no longer fought with them. Then the whole Frankish army descended to the gates of Constantinople and asked to cross the Mediterranean Sea. The Emperor Alexios made peace and an alliance with the Frankish leaders, and taking them to Saint Sophia, gave them gifts of much gold and silver. In turn, the Franks took an oath that they would hand over to the Emperor Alexios all those regions they captured from the Persians, which previously had belonged to the Romans, while all the conquests made of Persian and Arab territory would belong to the Franks. This pact was sealed by an oath sworn on the cross and the gospel, and thus never to be broken. Obtaining troops and officers from the Emperor, the Franks sailed across the vast Mediterranean and with a formidable army reached the town called Nicaea, located near this sea. All the Persian forces gathered together against the Frankish forces who were encamped in that area and attacked them. However, the Franks defeated the Persian forces and put them to flight, and pursuing after them with the sword, filled the whole land with bloodshed. Assaulting Nicaea, they captured the town by the sword and slaughtered all the infidels within its walls. After this, the Muslims, heavy with grief, went to the Sultan Kilij Arslan, who at that time was besieging the city of Melitene, and informed him of all this. The Sultan assembled an innumerable army and went against the Frankish forces in the territory of Nicaea. Both sides engaged in a furious battle, ruthlessly and valiantly attacking one another, and savagely striking against each other's front lines. Incited by the sparks flying from the helmets, the clatter of the coats of mail, and the cracking noise of the bows, all the infidels' forces regrouped themselves. The whole land shook from the din of battle, and the horses trembled because of the clatter of arrows. The courageous and the heroic engaged each other in combat, ruthlessly hacking away at one another like young lions. The first day of battle turned out to be a great and formidable one, for the Sultan went into battle against the Franks with 600,000 men. In spite of the tremendous number of Persian troops, the Frankish forces defeated them and put them to flight, causing such a frightful and severe slaughter that the plain was covered with their dead corpses. Moreover, the Franks took tens of thousands of captives, and the gold and silver they seized from the Persians could not be counted. After three days, the Sultan once again collected troops and came against the Frankish forces at the head of a formidable army. An even more frightful and severe battle was fought than before. The Frankish forces fought against the Persians with the same fury as before, and drove them from the land, slaughtering and taking captives. After this, the Franks handed over the town of Nicaea to the Roman Emperor, Alexios. In the year 546 of the Armenian era, during the time of the Armenian patriarchs, their lordships Varam and Barsal, and the reign of the Roman Emperor Alexios, the army of the Westerners moved forth with a formidable number of about 500,000 men. Tauros, the ruler of Edessa, and the great Armenian prince Constantine, the son of Reuben, were informed of their coming by letter. Constantine occupied the Taurus Mountains in the region of Kopitar, situated in the district of Marapa, and had become master of a number of regions. Moreover, he was formerly an officer in Gakik's army. Now, the Frankish forces consisting of a tremendous army journeyed through Bithynia, and in close formation traversed the confines of Cappadocia finally reaching the steep slopes of the Taurus Mountains, soon coming to Cilicia. In this same year, 
a frightful and strange omen appeared in the northern portion of the sky. Such a marvelous omen had never been seen by anyone. In the month of Mareri, the sky flared up and became deep red in the midst of a clear and calm atmosphere. The red sky contracted into clusters, emitting all sorts of nuances of color. These clusters flowed along in an easterly direction, and after having accumulated here and there, covered the greater portion of the heavens. Moreover, they were an amazing color, a very deep red, and reached up to the heavenly wall. The savants and the sages recognized the significance of all this, and said that it was an omen of bloodshed. The fulfillment of this omen of evil destruction and disaster, we will relate shortly in our book. And welcome to History of the Ultramar, episode 2.24, Through the Cilician Gates. We're now entering the end of the beginning. Within a handful of episodes, the first Ultramar states will have been founded. To give you a quick scheduling update, today we'll be talking about one half of the army's journey to Antioch, and next time we'll talk about what the other half got up to. Then we'll jump right to the founding of the first Ultramar state, Edessa. Afterwards, we'll return to Antioch for a few episodes, because a lot is going to be going on there. Then we'll continue south to Jerusalem. I'm terrible at these estimates, but I'd say this season has got about 10 to 15 episodes left. I'm not sure yet if the founding of the County of Tripoli will fit into this season, because that also involves the early political machinations in the Kingdom of Jerusalem and Principality of Antioch, as well as the Second Crusade. That's an uncapitalized Second Crusade, by the way, as in the crusade that happened second, not the capitalized Second Crusade. And all that sounds like season three stuff to me. This season is called a pilgrimage, after all. Jerusalem is the natural endpoint. That's the plan. We'll see how well it holds up after making contact with the enemy. Speaking of making contact with the enemy, last time we left our merry band of armed pilgrims, they had crossed the central Anatolian plateau, coming to Heraclea, on the southeastern edge of the plateau. Looming in their way were the Taurus Mountains, which cut the plateau off from the lowland coastal region to the southeast, known as Cilicia. Or Cilicia, if you prefer that pronunciation. It was clear by now that the Crusaders' next target was Antioch. Why? I could answer that question myself, or I could field it to Ale from February of 2021, who was in the middle of working on episode 1.7 of the podcast. Actually, I don't think I had come up with seasons yet, so he was just working on episode 7, Bound by Hate. So, Ale from February of 2021, why was Antioch so important? Antioch was a prized possession for the Byzantines. It was right at the corner between Anatolia and Syria, perfectly positioned to protect the coastal southern territories. It was also very well defended and nigh impossible to besiege. But surely, Antioch was only strategically important, right? Antioch was not only strategically important, though. The city was incredibly important for the Christian religion and one of the five cities of the Pentarchy, 
alongside Rome, Constantinople, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. Oh damn, I guess that means that it had value both for the pilgrimage aspect of the crusade, as well as the alliance with the Byzantines. Thanks, Ali from February 2021. Welcome. Now, the direct route to Antioch would have been to take the army through the Cilician Gates, a narrow pass of about 110 kilometers. The gates have been a vital passageway for thousands of years. The Hittites used it, the Persians used it, Alexander the Great used it, and obviously, the Romans had used it. Even leaving Antioch aside, going through the gates was also the direct route to Jerusalem, which is where these folks were headed, wasn't it? Yet, the bulk of the army didn't go through the pass. Most of the army turned north after Heraclea, up towards Caesarea where they would take a route through the anti-Taurus mountain range, the northwestern continuation of the Tauruses, and then swing down towards Antioch. I've uploaded a lovely map illustrating this path to the website, historyoftheutramer.wordpress.com, so if you're more visual in nature, jump over there. Anyway, while most of the army went up and around, two small contingents chose to go through the gates, each led by a different junior commander. Tancred of Oatville, Bohemond's nephew, and Baldwin of Boulogne, Godfrey of Bouillon's younger brother. This decision seems kind of wacky. Why not just take the whole army straight through Cilicia? Heraclea to Antioch was a distance of about 350 kilometers via the Cilician Gates. Via Caesarea? It was nearly twice as long, about 650 kilometers. The narrowness of the Cilician Gates is often cited as a reason. At some points, the pass narrows to only 25 meters in width. And it was already fall. If winter storms came just a few weeks early, the army could easily find themselves snowed in. However, the route the main army ended up taking, as we'll see in an episode, was also incredibly dangerous. So it wasn't really the geographical or meteorological concerns that prompted this split. It seems military concerns were really key here. Coming out of Cilicia and into Syria would have entailed moving through the Belin Pass on the other side, also known as the Syrian Gate. And that spot was perfect for the garrison of Antioch to lay an ambush. If the army came down from the north, they would have more mobility as they approached Antioch. But then why send anyone through Cilicia at all? This expedition is often thought of as a random joyride taken by two of the army's Yuenesh, just looking for gold and glory. And while that may have been part of the ulterior motives, this may have also been part of a larger strategy. Let's take a beat and talk about Tancred for a sec. Now, Tancred will eventually become the ruler of Antioch. Really, the first true ruler of the Latin principality of Antioch. He will have the most impact on what the principality was like in terms of geographical extent, diplomatic relationships, trade policies, and more. And to talk about Tancred, we have to talk about Ralph of Gaunt. Ralph of Gaunt was a Norman monk who eventually became Bohemond of Tarento's chaplain around the time Bohemond tried his second invasion of the Byzantine Roman Empire. He later entered the service of Tancred of Oviel, serving under the Prince of Antioch until Tancred's death in 1112. At this point, Ralph seems to have felt that neither Bohemond nor Tancred had received just praise for their actions during the First Crusade, and so he wrote a history. As he was not a participant, he very clearly states that he's writing based on mainly what he heard from them. He says, quote, 
It is a noble exercise to recount accurately the deeds of princes. To do so is to consider generously all that is subject to time, to celebrate the dead, to entertain the living, and to set out a past life as a model for later generations. It is to bring back what has happened in the past. When considering these matters, I have frequently turned my mind to that joyous pilgrimage, that glorious labor that restored to us our inheritance, that is, our mother Jerusalem. It is fitting for me to battle on behalf of those who participated in this glorious labor, that is, on behalf of Bohemond when he besieged Durazzo, and on behalf of Tancred when a short time later he freed Edessa from a Turkish siege. Both of these men recalled daily the fleeing Turks and the approaching Franks. Sometimes they discussed the deadly enemies and sometimes the captured cities. Antioch, that was captured by night through guile, and Jerusalem, that was captured by day through force of arms. End quote. Uh, he goes on like this for a while, and then he turns to his motivations. Now, he says that he hadn't written this text earlier because he thought he would be accused of bias in favor of the Italo-Normans. Quote, Thus, I grew to know both of them, but especially Tancred. No one had a kinder lord, or one who was more generous or charming. In the presence of this very vigorous man, my quiet spirit responded in this manner. What you seek as a living man, you will receive once you have been buried, if I should survive. I will not praise you while you live. I will praise you after your death. I will praise you after all is complete. For in this case it will not happen that Tancred will rise up in elation after being praised, and that Ralph shall fall into the trap of flattering his subject while praising him. The envious man will be silent, and the murmurer will become muted when you are dead, and when the gifts, which the living use as reward, cease to come to you. So too will fall silent the poisonous voices of the rumor mongers who would cast me in the role of seller, and you as the buyer. End quote. Well, fittingly, he titled his book, Gesta Tancredi in Expeditione Hierosolimitana the deeds of Tancred in the Jerusalem expedition. So, you know, he acknowledged his bias. What does Ralph tell us about Tancred's motivations when he decided to head through Cilicia? Well, quote, The commanders thought to take the units of foot soldiers toward Antioch along the longer but easier road through the cultivated plains, and so they put this plan into action. But Tancred chose to follow the unfrequented ways of the woodlands, the difficulties of the mountains, and the rivers of Cilicia, as these paths offered a more direct and quicker route to the same city. Oh, amazing fighter for whom labor is desirable, war is safety, leisure is difficult, difficulties are matters of ease, and for whom last of all nothing is sweet which was not the result of his own sweat. We are amazed at this man who is never amazed. We fear for this man who never fears. Pope, Tancred, is this audacity, not madness? You are bound for Antioch, and you are content to bring 100 men with breastplates? Your archers number barely 200. You are fighting against Syria with all of its thousands? You have too few. Increase your numbers. Your enemy is great and many swords are against you. Your enemy arms more armies than you have men. End quote. So, Ralph basically says that Tancred took this route because it was quicker, even though it was much more dangerous. We know it really wasn't that much more dangerous, but it was quicker, and that's one possibility. 
Tancred might have been acting as a proxy for Bohemond here, making sure that Bohemond was in the best position once they got to Antioch. If you recall, Tancred had done much the same at Nicaea. Ralph also mentions Tancred's small contingent, and mentions finding more support. And that's another possibility. Remember that Cilicia was at the time populated primarily by Armenians. Aleph from February 2021, what was the root cause of the Armenian population in Cilicia? The Roman Reconquest. But wasn't the Roman Reconquest just at the detriment of what was once the Caliphate? This Reconquest was partially at the detriment of what was once the Caliphate, but it also included the eventually total annexation of what was once the Bagratuni Kingdom of Armenia. Oh, but what does that have to do with Armenians in Cilicia and Syria? These Armenians would be incorporated into the empire, and many of them would be encouraged to move to other newly conquered regions. As the Romans took back Cilicia and northern Syria from what was once the Caliphate, they established new eastern provinces and forced the Muslims out, replacing them with Armenians. Oh, I get it now. Thanks, Ali, from February 2021. Welcome. Remember that these Armenians had been on the forefront of the conflict between the Romans and the Seljuks, conflicts that had involved plenty of Frankish mercenaries. Oh, I can't remember the name of that one Byzantine general. Think you can help me out, Ali, from February 2021? Filaretos Prahamios was a Byzantine general. He did not come from Armenian nobility, and some sources seem to indicate he was actually a bandit before being recruited by the Romans. Filaretos was ruthless, and in the Armenian sources, he's pretty much universally portrayed as being a cruel bastard. You might recall that Brahamios was given control of a substantial chunk of Byzantine forces by Romanos Diogenes. When Diogenes was blinded and removed from power, Brahamios held on to his command and basically became independent. The core of his little band of merry men was actually a bunch of Frankish mercenaries led by a Norman named Rambo. Thanks, Ale from February 2021. Wait, how do you pronounce the name of the Roman Emperor Romanos Diogenes? Romanos Diogenes. Sorry, come again? Romanos Diogenes. Uh-huh. And uh, how do you pronounce the name of the Roman Emperor Diocletian? Diocletian. Sorry, is that with three L's instead of the two that are clearly written in his name? Diocletian. <sighs> you dumb bitch. Anyway. Filaretos' little independent state had crumbled, but before dying, he had actually normalized relationships with Alexios Komnenos. Somewhat. So, if we buy that Bohemond was still working to convince Alexios that he deserved the title of Grand Domestic of the East, what better way to do so than to control the territories a former domestic, Filaretos, had once controlled? Tancred could easily have been working for Bohemon and in extension Alexios here, laying the groundwork for future Roman reconquest. The benefit for the crusade would have been the establishment of some support for the crusade as it approached Antioch. Cilicia had coastal towns, which would allow for ships to come and resupply the crusade without having to travel across the plateau. But what about Baldwin? Well, if it's true that this expedition was really in service of a joint Franco-Byzantine strategy, then the plan may have been for Tancred and Baldwin to work together on this project. If so, that part of the plan fell apart real fucking quick. Like, real quick. It's unclear if the two even left together. 
If they did, they soon split up and headed into Cilicia. Now, before we talk about what they got up to, let's talk about what Cilicia and the rest of the Armenian-dominated former Byzantine provinces looked like. Here we come to our opening. Taken straight from Matthew of Edessa. Matthew is, of course, very nearly a primary source. He's writing just a couple decades later from the Utremer county of Edessa. Matthew's mention of strange atmospheric phenomena may be in reference to the same thing Fulcher saw as the army approached Heraclea in the quote we ended episode 2.22 with. He says he saw the shape of a sword pointing to the east, and Matthew says the sky turned blood red. They're both writing with hindsight, so that should give you an idea of how they perceived the events that were about to occur. When recounting the events of 1096 and 1097, or rather 545 and 546 of the Armenian era, Matthew gives a list of the Westerners who suddenly arrived in the East. His list is accurate, he's got the big figures, and he also adds that a man named Jocelyn came afterwards. Jocelyn would later become Count of Edessa. He shows up in the opening to episode 1.7. Matthew also names various Armenian rulers hanging out in 1097. One is the commander of Melitim, Koril, also known by the anglicized form of his name, Gabriel. Gabriel had once served under Filaretos Prahamios. After the removal of Filaretos around 1086, Gabriel had more or less become independent. He seems to have worked out some sort of arrangement with the Danishmans, though, who, as I've mentioned, were nomads but seemed to have had some sort of ties to the pre-Seljuk powers in the area. Their relationship with Gabriel clearly shows this. Gabriel was also looking for some sort of recognition from the Seljuk Sultan. He had sent his wife to Baghdad to talk to whoever the Seljuk Sultan was at that time. Things were pretty chaotic in the Seljuk world. And by the way, as Matthew says in late 1096, while the Crusaders were arriving in Nicaea, Kilij Arslan was busy trying to take Melitine from Gabriel, which was a challenge to the Donishmans. It's unclear if Gabriel was directly subordinate to the Donishmans. He will eventually come into conflict with them and ally with the Franks. His daughter Morphia will become Queen of Jerusalem, but all that's in the future. Matthew also mentions Tauros of Edessa. Tauros is the Armenian equivalent to Theodore, by the way. I find it kind of annoying that the commonly used names are Gabriel and Tauros, instead of Gabriel and Theodore, or even better, Koril and Tauros. But those are the names you see most frequently, so that's what I'll be using, even if they're mismatched. Anyway, Toros had also been a commander under Filaretos, but it seems that his position in Edessa owed more to an alliance with the Seljuks. Now I have to defer once more to a different past Ale, this time Ale from May of 2021, in the process of producing episode 1.14, The Disorder of the Realm. When Filaretos was removed from power, the area he'd once controlled, including Edessa, became a bit of a power vacuum, and that was a concern to the great Seljuk Sultan of the time, Malik Shah, because he'd sent his younger brother Tutush to this same region, perhaps hoping to keep him from presenting a threat closer to the Seljuk capital, at Baghdad. However, Tutush was doing a bit Tutush well. And if he succeeded in bringing the whole of Syria-Palestine under his control, that could present a threat. So in the summer of 1086, Malik Shah headed to Syria personally. And then what did he do, Ale from May 2021? 
Malik Shah set about ensuring that the three great cities of northern Syria, Edessa, Aleppo, and Antioch, were being governed by loyal administrators. In Edessa, he left Bozan, in Aleppo, Aksungur, and in Antioch, Yagi Siyan. That last name will definitely be coming up again. Did you remember those guys' names? Good job! Something important happened just six years later, on the 19th of November, 1092. Do you want to fill us in, Ale, from May 2021? The murder of Malik Shah on the 19th of November, 1092. Yikes! And what happened then? Upon the death of his brother, Tutush had a strong claim to the title of Great Sultan. He wrote to Yagi Siyan in Antioch, Aksungur in Aleppo, and Bozan in Edessa, ordering them to support his claim. And at first, they went along with it. Oh, good for Tutush! But before long, Aksungur and Bozan had abandoned him in favor of Berkiruk, Malik Shah's eldest son, and another contender for control of the empire, obviously. Berkiruk sent one of his commanders, a Mamluk named Kerboga, to deal with his uncle Tutush. Well, that sucks. Kerboga joined up with Aksungur and Bozan to crush Tutush. But Tutush turned out to be a bigger threat than he had planned. He killed Aksungur in battle, then captured Aleppo with both Kerboga and Bozan inside. Bozan was killed, and Tutush later waved the governor's head on a pike outside of Edessa to gain control of that city as well. Ah, good for Tutush! I'm sure that was the foundation for a solid claim to the Sultanate. In 1095, when in combat outside the city of Rey, Tutush was defeated and decapitated, apparently by one of Aksungur's old commanders. Oof. But what happened in Edessa? Toros, the former Roman general who'd served under our old friend Filaretos Pajamios, closed the gates of the city to the Muslims and declared himself the ruler of the city. Oh, thanks, Ale, from May 2021. Welcome. So, to fill in some gaps, it's possible Tutush himself may have placed Toros in command of Edessa. That's what Matthew of Edessa says happened. It may seem like an odd choice, but the fact that Toros was a total outsider to Seljuk politics made him a very attractive subordinate while Tutush was fighting random Turkmen commanders all around him. Toros was a ex-Roman general. He definitely wasn't going to have any allies. It's also possible that Toros had been some sort of subordinate governor in the city ever since the days of Filaretos. Malik Shah, and then Bozan, and then Tutush may have just extracted an oath of loyalty from him. After all, the city was populated primarily by Armenians, and someone needed to act as liaison for the Turks. All we know for certain is that whatever his role beforehand, Toros took control in 1095, and he was still governor of the city two years later, when the Franks arrived. We'll be coming back to him. Matthew mentions one more ruler, and that's Constantine, the son of Reuben, who ruled various fortress cities in the Taurus Mountains. He also says Constantine had served in the army of Gagik. Now, we've met Gagik before. He was the last ruler of the Bagratuni dynasty, the independent Armenian kingdom that had been dismembered by the Romans during the 11th century. If you go back to episode 1.7, Ale from February 2021 can tell you all about how he ended up getting killed by some Byzantines, and also how he had a Byzantine church official eaten by his own dog. Reuben, Constantine's father, also known as Rupin, is known as the first king of Armenian Cilicia, and the founder of the Rubinid or Rupinid, dynasty. It's possible he was a blood relative of Gagik and the Bagratunis, 
but that's not really clear. He did, almost certainly, serve in Gakik's army, though I think his son Constantine would have been too young. Calling Reuben and Constantine kings of Armenian Cilicia is a bit hyperbolic, though. The title Lord of the Mountains is much more appropriate, because, as Matthew says, they held power in the Taurus Mountains, not so much in the Cilician lowlands. They really get the title retroactively, because their dynasty will come to rule the lowlands as well. Constantine represents a counterpoint to men like Gabriel and Tauros, while the latter two styled themselves in Byzantine styles using titles like Kuropalates and adhering to Orthodox Christianity, Constantine claimed descent from the independent Armenian kingdom of the early 11th century, and he was loyal to the Armenian church, like most of the common folk around. But these three were far from the only game in town. Many other independent Armenian rulers had seized cities and fortresses of their own. The original decision to have the Crusading army split up and make contact with the Armenians in the area may well have started as a plan to prepare for the reabsorption of these lands into the Roman Empire. And it wasn't a bad plan on Alexis's part, but it did backfire slightly. Because, sure, many of the Armenians, like Gabriel and Tauros, were the remnants of Byzantine authority in the region. But just as many were the remnants of independent Armenia. And in the decades following the collapse of Roman rule in the east, both groups had had to find ways to live alongside the Turks. In short, loyalty to the empire was a very nebulous concept 25 years after the Romans had been defeated at Manzikert. So when the Crusaders came to town, sure, there was a possibility they could act as a link to authority back in Constantinople, but there was also the possibility to ally directly with the Franks. At the time, it probably seemed much more attractive than bending the knee to the heretic Greeks or the infidel Turks, even if the Franks were also heretics. And for the Franks, they might have been pleasantly surprised to find fellow Christians who didn't try to extract oaths of subordination from them. What's more, the Franks that had served in Philaretos' army hadn't vanished, they were still around. Many of them continued to serve in the independent Armenian statelets. So in mid-September, both Tancred and Baldwin left Heraclea and headed towards the Cilician Gates. Both of their contingents were lean, mean, fighting machines, meaning no unarmed combatants. Baldwin had even left his wife behind with the bulk of the army. Again, it's unclear if they were working together or if they even left together. If they did, they soon split up. Tancred had about a three-day lead on Baldwin, as they exited the Cilician Gates. Accompanied by an unnamed Armenian guide, Tancred headed directly for Tarsus, the central city of Cilicia. It was in Tarsus where Cleopatra had met Mark Antony for the first time, and an archway still stands in her honor there. When Tancred arrived at the gates of the city on the 21st of September 1097, Tarsus's glory had faded some, but it was still a magnificent city. Tarsus was technically in Turkish control, an extension of the Seljuk Empire, but with the civil war raging, it was more or less on its own. The Turkish garrison seems to have been more or less independent, perhaps in some way subordinate to Antioch, where it could maintain a maritime connection, or perhaps subordinate to Kilij Arslan, 
whose father, Suleiman ibn Qutlamush, had once ruled from Nicomedia in the west to Antioch in the east. The Turkish garrison of Tarsus ran out to combat the approaching Franks, but they were soon beaten back, and Tancred let the Turks know that his was but an appetizer of the enormous host heading their way. By now, news of both Nicaea and Dorylaeum had likely spread. So unsurprisingly, the Turks agreed to hand the city over to Tancred. But this plan was interrupted by the arrival of Baldwin just outside the city. The specifics are a bit murky, but I'll let Albert of Aachen give his version. Remember, he's mostly getting his info from returning Lorrainers, serving with Godfrey of Bouillon, Baldwin's brother. Quote, At Tarsus, a certain Armenian who had spent some time with Tancred and had become acquainted with him, promised to suggest to the townspeople, who were weighed down by the heavy yoke of the Turks, that they should give up the town into Tancred's own hands, secretly and without the Turks' knowledge, if it so happened that they found the right time and place. But as the townspeople were cowardly and would not accept their Armenian brother's advice because of the Turks' presence and watchfulness, Tancred, who had gone on ahead, plundered the regions neighboring the aforesaid city, and having assembled boundless supplies of spoils for use in this siege, he spread out his tents all the way around the walls. When the tents were pitched, Tancred made many threats to the Turks who were stationed all over the ramparts and towers concerning Bohemond's arrival and the strength of the army which followed, and he declared that unless they came out and opened the gates of the city, the approaching army would not withdraw from the siege of this city before it was taken like Nicaea, conquered with all its inhabitants. But if they gave in to his will and opened up the city, they would not only find favor and life in Bohemond's eyes, but receiving many rewards, they would also obtain charge of their town and of other fortresses. The Turks were softened by these coaxings and promises and by the impressive threats, and they promised to surrender the city to Tancred on this condition, that no further danger or trouble should be caused to them by any following band, so long as they and the city garrison were subject to Bohemond's power. Tancred, not at all reluctant, arranged for a treaty to be secured with them on these terms. Tancred's own flag was to be raised on top of the chief citadel as a sign that Tancred, in advance of Bohemond, had lain claim to this town, and so in turn it would be kept intact from any hostile attack. Baldwin, Duke Godfrey's brother, had been separated on another route, and was wandering for three days away from the army through deserted and unknown places in the mountains. They were afflicted by severe hunger and want of supplies. But at last, after a maze of intricate roads, they happened to be standing together on top of a certain mountain. Observing Tancred's tents from there, pitched all over the level ground of the plains to besiege Tarsus, they were afraid with a great fear, reckoning this to be Turkish equipment. And in fact, Tancred, seeing the men on the mountaintop from afar, was no less terrified, judging them to be Turks who had hurried to the relief of their allies blockaded in the city. When at last Baldwin's men were descending, despairing of life, half dead from hunger, Tancred, as a keen soldier, warned his comrades that they should fight for their lives. Moreover, about 500 of the Turks had assembled on the turreted walls for the spectacle and for defense, and they too, similarly thinking that Baldwin and his retinue were battle lines of Turks, were taunting Tancred and threatening him in this way. Look at the company of men hurrying to reinforce us. 
We are not in your hands as you reckoned, but you and your men are today in our hands and in our power to be destroyed. And so now you may be sure that you have been deceived in this treaty which we made to thwart you. And we have not made you stay in this camp for any other reason, except that we were expecting the hope of reinforcement from these armies, which you see coming to destroy you and your men. Tancred, undaunted warrior, paid little attention to the Turk's threats. He reacted to the taunts with a short reply. If you consider these to be your soldiers or chiefs, in the name of our god, we think little of them. We are not afraid to approach. If, with the Lord's help, they are conquered by us, then your insolence and boasting will not escape punishment. But if we cannot stand firm because our sin prevents us, still you will never escape the hands of Bohemon and his army which is following. This said, Tancred, with all his company who had ridden ahead with him, hastened on swift horses to meet Baldwin, bearing standards, weapons, helmets, and hauberks. The Turks thundered loudly from the walls with trumpets and dread-sounding horns to frighten Tancred. But on both sides, the banners of Christianity were recognized, and friends and fellow countrymen were seen, and they dissolved into tears of joy, because thus, by the grace of God, they were now delivered from pains and perils. And without delay, the forces duly combined, and by common consent, they pitched their tents together before the city walls, and of the spoils of cattle and herds they had collected from the mountains and from the region, they killed some for food and prepared it, and put it on the fire. There was absolutely no bread there for anyone, and so their long-suffered hunger forced them to devour this meat, even though it was cooked without salt. End quote. I just like that bit about saltless meat, so I left it in even though it's not really relevant. I can just imagine a returning crusader whining about it to Albert and insisting this detail be included. Anyway, after this farcical case of mistaken identity, which must have seriously embarrassed the Turkish garrison, if this is true, of course, Baldwin's arrival should have made Tancred's job even easier. But it seems the two men soon got into a dick-measuring contest. Returning to Albert, quote, At dawn the next day, Baldwin got up and his followers, and they made for the city walls where they observed Tancred's standard, which was very well known placed on the highest turret of the citadel, in accordance with the agreement and pact made with the Turks. When they saw this, they were inflamed with great indignation and anger, and burst out in bitter and mutinous words against Tancred and his men, caring not a straw for the ostentation and high rank of Tancred and Bohemon, likening them to dirt and dregs. With such bitter words, the affair nearly came to blows, but peaceful and wiser men intervened with this advice, that by way of a legation of both parties, they should find out from the Armenian townspeople themselves under whose ownership and authority they preferred the city to be, and whose side they favored as the better by choice. Immediately the reply from everyone was that they would rather submit and yield to Tancred than to the authority of any other prince. In fact, they said this not out of heartfelt devotion, but out of mistrust, which they always felt, of an attack by Bohemond. And that is not to be wondered at, for long before this expedition, in the lands of Greece, Romania, and in Syria, Bohemond's reputation was well known, and his warfare made them shudder. Only now was Duke Godfrey's name glittering for the first time. When he heard these offensive words, Baldwin, with great fury in his heart, 
was roused to anger against Tancred, and in his presence, he addressed the townspeople as well as the Turks through the words of an interpreter, thus. You should not believe that Bohemon and this Tancred, whom you so respect and fear, are in any way the greatest and most powerful chiefs of the Christian army, nor that they bear comparison with my brother, Godfrey, duke and leader of the soldiers from all Gaul. For this same prince, my brother Godfrey, is duke of a realm of the great and earliest Roman emperor, Augustus, by hereditary right of his noble ancestors. He is esteemed by the whole army, and great and small do not fail to comply with his words and advice on all matters, because he has been elected and appointed chief and lord by everyone. Know, in fact, that you and all your things, the city also, are to be consumed and destroyed by the sword and fire of this same duke, and neither Bohemund nor this Tancred will stand as your champions or defenders. But this man Tancred, whom you support, will not escape our hands today, unless you throw down from the top of the tower the standard which he put up to insult us and to glorify himself, and open the gates to us. If indeed you obey our will in the matter of throwing down this standard and surrendering the city, we shall raise you up above all who live within these boundaries, and you will always be highly regarded by our lord and brother, the duke, and honored by worthy gifts. The townspeople and Turks were seduced by this expectation of a good and flattering promise, and with Tancred utterly unaware what was going on, they made a treaty and pact of friendship with Baldwin. And without delay, Tancred's standard was removed from the top of the tower, and meanly thrown out far from the walls in a marshy place. Then Baldwin's standard was put in its place on the top of the same tower. End quote. So, according to Albert, conflict broke out basically because of hurt Lotharingian egos. In reality, many things may have happened to bring Tancred and Baldwin's forces into competition. The simplest answer is an argument over spoils. Tancred and his forces may have refused to allow Baldwin's forces to sack the city. This may have been because they wanted to sack the city, or another possible angle here is Tancred may have been sticking to a Byzantine plan and prohibiting wanton murder in Tarsus. It's also unclear what role the Armenians played here. Albert mentions two shadowy figures. One is Tancred's guide, and another is Baldwin's interpreter. Baldwin was by now traveling with a certain Bagrat, also known as Pakrad, who he'd met at Nicaea. Bagrat's brother, Kokhvazil, Vazil the robber, was a powerful figure in the region who controlled the city of Raban, among others. Albert of Aachen describes Bagrat in the following way. Baldwin entered the land of Armenia on the advice of a certain Armenian soldier called Bagrat, an untrustworthy man and one of great treachery, whom Baldwin had detained at Nicaea after he had escaped from the chains of the Emperor of Greece. He did so because he had heard that Bagrat was a warlike man and one whose talents took a thousand forms, and because all Armenia, Syria, and Greece were familiar to him. Bagrat, being both treacherous and cunning, was especially well known to the Turks. End quote. Albert's negative take on Bagrat was probably due to the fact that he ended up falling out with Baldwin. We'll get to that too. Still, it's not inconceivable that the kerfuffle between Baldwin and Tancred was really due to a bit of manipulation from Armenian interests. The Armenians had gotten this far by playing powerful forces off each other. Keeping the Franks divided might have also seemed like a good idea. 
especially if the alternative was getting sacked by a bunch of bloodthirsty crusaders. Anyway, what we know for certain is that after seeing Baldwin's banner raised over Tarsus, Tancred and his forces left, and Baldwin gained control of Tarsus. Or at least, partial control. As Albert puts it, quote, After the departure of Tancred, Baldwin once again warned the Turks. He urged and promised that rewards and huge prizes from the Duke would follow. And not only that, but also they would be preferred to other towns if they would open the city, if they would let him in and his men in with a pledge of faith made by clasping right hands. The Turks and the Armenians saw Tancred's flight and disappearance and that Baldwin's power was stronger, and after a pledge was received and confirmed on both sides, they opened the city gates, let in Baldwin and his men, but decreed that they should stay on in all the turreted fortifications until Duke Godfrey and the supporting army approached, and then the matter of the town would be managed by gift and favor of the Duke himself, as well as the other things according to Baldwin's promise to them, whether they had chosen the Christian faith or chosen to persist in the rights of Gentiles. They assigned only two principal towers to Baldwin, in which he would be able to stay and rest safely and securely. The rest of the body of the army was scattered here and there throughout the houses and districts of the town. End quote. Meanwhile, Tancred headed towards the city of Adana. Now, what happened at Adana is a bit garbled in the sources. Albert of Aachen says that Tancred found Adana under the control of a Frank named Guelph from Burgundy, while Ralph of Caen says that the ruler of Adana was an Armenian who he calls Ursinus, whose name seems to match up with a known Armenian in the area, the ruler of the mountain fortress city of Lampron, a guy named Oshin. It's possible that both were true. Oshin had served in the Byzantine army at some point, and there's no reason to think that, like Filaretos, he hadn't had Frankish mercenaries under his command. He might have sent Guelph to Adana to take the city, after hearing about the Turkish defeats and retreats in the area. So Guelph might have been holding the city for Oshin, which is the situation I find most likely. Tancred had probably been hoping to take Adana for himself. Sensing that this could prove problematic, Oshin decided to steer the crusader towards a different target, Mamistra, further east. Notably, Ralph of Caen says he also gave Tancred the further support of 200 Armenian soldiers. At some point, Tancred seems to have also asked Bohemond for reinforcements, because after Tancred had left Tarsus, 300 Normans came to the city, looking to join up with him. Baldwin's position in the city seems to have still been a bit unstable. He didn't have full control yet, and he might have thought it was too risky to have a bunch of Tancred and Bohemond's men inside the city walls after having insulted them. So he made a decision, which ended up having serious consequences. I'll let Albert tell this tale. Quote, 300 of Bohemond's company and people who had been separated from the pilgrim army and had followed in Tancred's footsteps stood before the city walls, bearing weapons and shields. On Baldwin's orders and the leader's advice, the city and its entrance were forbidden to them. These men were worn out by their long journey. They were lacking then necessities of life and exhausted. So they pleaded insistently for the hospitality of the city and the chance to buy necessities. All the common people from Baldwin's company pleaded too, because these were brothers and of the Christian faith. But Baldwin did not listen to their pleas at all. For this reason, namely, that they had come down to help Tancred, and also on account of the promise he had made to the Turks and Armenians, 
not to receive or admit anyone except his own men into the city before the arrival of Duke Godfrey. However, their brothers and pilgrims of Baldwin's company, seeing that those shut out thus could not in any way obtain admission, took pity on them because they saw that they were in danger of starving. They decided to offer bread in baskets to them and let down sheep on ropes for them to eat. Then, when they had thus been refreshed and were overtaken by a deep sleep at dead of night because of their weariness after the journey, the Turks, who were in the garrisons of the towers under the protection of the promise, absolutely desperate and not fully trusting Baldwin and his fellow Christians, secretly took counsel among themselves, and 300 carrying with them all their treasures and other things secretly left the city, while Baldwin and all his men were given up to sleep, by fording a certain river not unknown to them which flowed through the middle of the city, leaving only 200 of their lowly dependents and households in the garrisons, lest there should be any suspicion of their flight among the Christians. After they left the city, however, they made a surprise attack on the Christian men who had surrendered their tired limbs to sleep throughout the meadows in front of the city, beheading some, slaughtering others, piercing others through with arrows, leaving alive no one, or few, out of all of them. When morning came, and the Christians who were inside the army got up and went to the walls to find out and see if their Christian brothers were still staying in the meadows, they saw them all beheaded by the weapons of the Turks, and the meadows made hideous and overflowing with their blood. And in this way, the treachery and injustice of the Turks was made clear. At once, an uproar arose through the whole town among the Catholic people. They all seized their weapons, and in revenge for the blood of their brothers who had been dishonorably killed, they made haste to break down the towers to put to death the Turks they found there, stirring up a considerable riot with trumpets and loud shouting. Baldwin was astonished by such a violent din, and by the excited gathering of the people. He rode swiftly from the garrison in the tower through the middle of the city, urging the troops of armed men to stop fighting and to return to their quarters, lest the treaty exchanged be breached so soon. He did this until the slaughter of the Christians was made more fully known to him. But the uproar was becoming more and more violent, and the people were very angry at the murder of the Christians, and shouting that Baldwin was guilty of this massacre through his fatal advice. The tumult and discharge of arrows became so fierce and so great against him that he was forced to enter the tower for refuge, driven by the necessity of saving his life. There, when he had returned to himself, after the fierceness of his feelings had died down, so as to placate the people, he defended himself on all charges and claimed that he was ignorant of the cruelty of the Turks, and he had not shut out the people of the living God for any other reasons than the vow he had sworn to the Turks and Armenians, that no one would be admitted except his own men before the Duke's arrival. After Baldwin had thus exonerated himself and was reconciled with his people, he attacked and overcame tower by tower the Turks who had stayed behind because they were of lowly family and household. His men attacked them too until they had beheaded nearly 200 in revenge for their colleagues. In fact, very many distinguished women of the town were accusing those same Turks, showing the Christians ears and noses which the Turks had cut off them because they did not find the women willing to be defiled. The people of Jesus Christ were more greatly inflamed to hatred of the Turks by this scandal and horrendous accusation, and they further increased their slaughter of them. So, leaving the details aside, it seems that Baldwin refused entry to 300 Normans, 
who were then butchered, probably by Turks, as Albert says, either from the town or the surrounding area. I buy the general idea here, mainly because Albert has no reason to lie. If anything, he'd be prejudiced to take Baldwin's side, because most of his sources were from Godfrey's army. I also buy that Baldwin was nearly killed himself for having caused the situation, but that he was then able to turn the mob against residents of the town, possibly Turks, as Albert says, or possibly Armenians. After this debacle, Baldwin was likely aided by the arrival of unexpected ships on the horizon, which helped everyone forget that whole Baldwin got 300 francs killed thing. After telling us about how the Christians went around beheading Turks in Tarsus, Albert says, quote, When a few days had passed after this, Baldwin's men, who were scattered along the walls, observed from afar in the middle of the sea, three miles from the city, a great number of ships of different kinds and workmanship. Their masts were of a wonderful height and covered in purest gold, so they shone in the rays of the sun. And they saw men disembarking from those same ships onto the seashore and dividing among themselves a great deal of spoils, which they had brought together over a long period of time, nearly eight years. When they saw these men, they thought they were hostile forces, summoned by those who had fled from the nocturnal slaughter of the Christians. So they armed themselves eagerly and rushed together to that same shore, some on horseback, some on foot, inquiring fearlessly why they had come and what nation they had come from. The men replied that they were soldiers of the Christian faith, acknowledging that they had come from Flanders and from Antwerp and Frisia and the other parts of Gaul, and that they had been pirates for eight years until this day. The men who had sailed in were also asking why they too had come down from the lands of the Romans and Germans and come into such a remote exile among so many barbarous nations. They testified that they had come for the sake of pilgrimage and to worship in Jerusalem, and so each side recognized the speech and language of the other, and they made a treaty, giving their right hands to all go to Jerusalem. In this naval association, there was a certain man called Guinemer, the chief and master of all the Swarm Brothers, from the land of Boulogne, and a member of the household of Count Eustace, the splendid prince of that same land. Once they were strengthened by an exchange of promises on this side and that, they left their ships and entered the city of Tarsus with Baldwin, taking the spoils and all their baggage, and they rejoiced and feasted for some days on all the good things of the land there. Then, when they had consulted among themselves, 300 were chosen from the naval force to guard and defend the city. 200 more were appointed from Baldwin's troops. Having arranged and organized this, they set out with their combined weapons and forces, and they marched up the royal road to the sound of trumpets and horns in a great display of power. So, yeah. According to Albert, some random Frankish pirates showed up on the Cilician coast and just happened to run into the pilgrims. I mean, on the one hand, the east was crawling with pirates, I suppose some had to be Frankish, but it does seem highly coincidental. William of Tyre makes the situation a bit less coincidental. He says the pirates had been pirates in the North Sea and were heading to Jerusalem to cleanse themselves of the sin of piracy. But this still doesn't explain why their leader, Guinemer is said to have been from Baldwin's brother's household. The arrival of random sea troops is going to continue to be a thing. Remember, we already had some random Italians show up earlier at Constantinople. This is going to continue happening. And it's really hard to separate these elements, which were merchants and pirates, from the First Crusade, which is more of a pilgrimage. It's going to be a big part of how this whole thing morphs into something much 
bigger than a mere pilgrimage. Anyway, as Albert says, Baldwin left a garrison to hold Tarsus and headed towards Mamistra, formerly Mapsuesta in classical times, and nowadays Mises. But at this point, Tancred had taken control of Mamistra, and it seems he had also learned the fate of the contingent Baldwin had gotten butchered outside Tarsus. And surprise, surprise, he really wasn't happy about it. The exact sequence of events is, surprise, surprise, somewhat disputed here, but at least Ralph of Gaunt's bias in favor of Tancred is evident, so we might as well take his account. By the way, he often refers to Tancred as the son of the Marquis. Quote, In the meantime, burdened with spoils, lacking mercy, having abused its freedom, and enjoying its illicit gains, the army of Count Baldwin left Tarsus. Now, having crossed with difficulty each of the rivers near to Adana and Mamistra, he established camp nearby to Tancred. He was indignant at having been kept away from the more rural courses of the channel because of the local habit of maintaining only those bridges nearby the city. Even so, there did not seem any way to cross them because Tancred had ordered the locals to capture anyone who approached them. For Tancred did not wish to call Baldwin a brother who had driven him away as an enemy. Therefore, Count Baldwin established his camp outside the walls and sought peace from the city. Moreover, he did not seek to seize supplies by force or ask for them out of grace, but rather through discussion and payment. For he knew that the mind of the man, Tancred, was upset by recent injury and that he who had brought this injury about was an object of hatred. Moreover, the city was well guarded with towers, had a large population, had a good supply of arms, and offered no hope to a thief through any weakness of its own. But Baldwin could not remain there if trade were denied to him. All of these concerns moved him to ask for peace. <laughs> what a marvelous thing! Matters that were unknown to other princes were commonplace for the son of the Marquis. He, Tancred, who had been enraged by the losses, injuries, and insults from three days earlier, personally conceded the peace that was asked of him, and announced it himself. Whether he was happy or angry, he never wavered or was unwilling to take the correct path. To gain pardon from him, it was only necessary to ask for it. Therefore, after he was asked, as was noted, to promise peace to Baldwin, Tancred responded that he would not deny trade as long as the merchants did not suffer from violence. Thus they came and went and bought and sold, those from the city to the camp and those from the camp to the city. The heavily armed mixed with the lightly armed. Those who were afflicted by weakness outside the walls, or whom the sun had burned, were saved by the hope of a speedy recovery inside the shade and the walls. This pause lasted only a few days, when a fire brought forth from the crafty ashes began to issue flames. For just as trade was re-established yesterday and the day before, conflicts began to arise among the buyers and sellers about prices and the quality of the goods that were purchased. A camp follower in a food stall. It was from this that a conflict broke out that eventually reached the princes themselves. The one who had suffered the injury thought it was worse because of his previous experience, while the one who had caused it feared the retaliation that was in the offing for him. Thus, divergent views diluted both, while each imputed a fourfold greater sin to the other. The matter quickly came to swords, and their arms took on a fury of their own. 
The men from the camp who were discovered within the walls were placed into custody if they were ill, or beaten with sticks if they were capable of fighting. The common men were driven out, while the nobles were placed in chains. A similar fate befell the men of the town who were caught outside the walls. The same thing happened among the heavily armed mounted troops, except that those who were outside assaulted the gates of the city, while those inside, seeking battle, opened the gates that were being attacked. At this point, there was no obstacle between the two sides. A field of battle stood between them, with banners planted here and there. Finally, the leaders stood facing the men arranged opposite them, and each feared to commit himself to such a battle. Baldwin, as was noted earlier, had a great many men, and was superior in numbers. Thus he drew off a little distance, so that he might entice the smaller force to leave the shelter of the walls. Tancred had far fewer men. For this reason he armed the towers with missile weapons, so that they could strike the first blow, and thus the greater descent of the javelins would support his smaller numbers in the fight. The commanders trusted in, and were divided by such advantages and concerns, so that each delayed an attack. Neither one wished to be the first to attack, but rather desired to be attacked by the other. There were many reasons for this, but the most important was that the first to attack would bear the shame and would be seen to be more guilty. But as is the military custom during this delay, many young men from each side participated in single combats. It would be possible to judge which side had the more just cause from these acts, if the attackers from one side fell and those from the other prevailed. However, both sides had victories and both sides losses, and men from both sides fell and triumphed. It is unfitting to know who bore his arms more justly. Among those who were engaged in these martial games was Richard of the Principate. He was not insignificant with respect either to his family or to his spirit, and he urged on his men with his tongue and his spear. He was the son of Count William, the nephew of Giscar, and having left Syracuse, he followed his paternal uncle Bohemund and joined Tancred. And while he was flying to and fro, he passed by one man and defeated another, when a spear pierced the unprepared man in the side, and quickly transformed one who had been mounted into a foot soldier. What was he to do after he fell? He drew his sword and brandished it about. But then a crowd of the enemy rushed upon him since he had left behind the support of his fellows to come closer to the enemy. Alone and attacked by so many adversaries, he was captured, dragged, disarmed, and placed into captivity. This same fate struck many on both sides who were degraded from their seats on horses to their feet. But to those possessing greater wisdom, it seemed insane that those who had set out together against an enemy should turn on each other. It was necessary to strengthen their force against the barbarians, rather than weaken an already weak group. Conscientiously thinking a great deal along these lines, the wise men exchanged war for peace. But the son of the Marquis, Tancred, who had suffered from these injuries, was difficult to persuade. Turning a deaf ear, except for when the return of Richard, the kinsman of his uncle, softened his will just as his capture had enraged him. Thus, the same man was both the cause of hatred and the cause of peace. Everyone returned to his own side, the heroes in exchange for heroes, the horsemen for horsemen, and foot soldiers for foot soldiers. Losses and gains ended up just as they had begun, unchanged, so that it is with merit that the common complaint could be raised. He who had, had, and he who lost, lost. Nor did the leaders remain together any longer. Baldwin left to conquer, 
and Tancred remained to enjoy what he had acquired. Albert's version of events is a bit simpler. Instead of a fight over market prices, which turned into like war games and like pseudo-jousting, Tancred just outright attacked Baldwin's camp in revenge for what had happened at Tarsus. This makes tons of sense, obviously, both in terms of Tancred doing it and why Ralph would come up with a really convoluted cover story. Albert is also much clearer in saying that Tancred did not fare well in battle against Baldwin, which is also very likely. But both sources clearly state that the battle, if you can call it that, was relatively minor, and the two sides were able to negotiate a peace. Still, Baldwin wisely chose to put some distance between him and Tancred. He headed towards Marash. It was now mid-October, and the rest of the army had made it around the Antitauruses and to Marash. William of Tyre says that it was only now that Baldwin was hearing about the fight his brother Godfrey had had with the bear, the one we talked about in episode 2.22. It's also possible that he'd heard his wife was on her deathbed in Marash. Tancred stayed behind, though. He wasn't quite done with his solo expedition. The expedition into Cilicia had had mixed results. On paper, everything was good. The region was in Christian hands, either Frankish garrisons or somewhat friendly Armenian powers. But under the surface, Cilicia had begun to expose cracks. Ego, ambition, and grudges. All of this had played out right in front of the Armenians, who had learned two things. One, these Franks could fight. And two, they could be made to fight each other. Next time on History of the Utremare, we catch up with the rest of the army as it swings up and around towards Marash and then Antioch. 